Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Okay, hello everybody and thanks a lot for joining to this uh, FEPS Talks episode with Catherine Trebek, uh, the co-founder of the Wellbeing Alliance Scotland, also a published academic and a member of the Scottish Climate Assembly. And I'm Andreas Dumelmeyer, FEPS uh, Policy Analyst for Climate and Environment, and I'm very, very uh, happy that Catherine can join me here today. So welcome, first of all. Thank you so much, Andreas. It's lovely to see you again. To kick off our meeting here, one question. I mean, well-being, it sounds like an intuitively nice concept, but could you tell us a little bit about what the meaning behind this concept is and and, uh, how it matters for, well, environmental and green policies? Sure, of course. And the term well-being is almost is becoming quite ubiquitous and it's almost used as frequently as there are different definitions and different conceptions of the term well-being. I like to think of it as quality of life and in a really rich, multi-dimensional way. So not just how happy people are feeling, but perhaps more importantly, how society is doing. And so that brings in questions around inequalities and injustices being attended to. Do people feel safe in their communities? Do people have decent jobs that pay them enough to live live on and, and give them enough time to participate in their communities and, and support their families? Are green spaces healthy? Is the air healthy? Is the climate about to, to break down? It's a multi-layered, multi-faceted agenda but to me it really can be boiled down to quality of life and and then we talk about the well-being economy which is essentially putting that adjective of well-being in front of the economy and then it begs us to ask the question what sort of economy do we need to deliver well-being for people and for planet uh, we, we definitely don't separate the two you know they're deeply inter- intimately linked and people will be so aware that the climate question, environmental breakdown, is a social justice question. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, so deeply interlinked. Okay, that sounds like a very uh, holistic uh, concept, which I suppose is needed to address a multiple systemic crisis that we face at the current time. But uh, let me ask you, while this sounds conceptually, of course, very convincing, can you also tell me policy-wise or how do we get there? Basically? What do we do? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it is it is challenging. There is mm. a, I'd say, <laughs> such a wide plethora of changes that are needed at all levels of the economy, from the very, very local right up to our supranational institutions, from how we design tax systems, what we tax, what we incentivize, what sort of activities are encouraged, uh, things like what sort of businesses are operating and make up the sectors of the economy. Are they businesses that are just out for a quick buck or are they businesses that are designed in a way that put other voices at the forefront of decision making that are thinking about how they benefit people and planet and take account of other, other stakeholders right through to the very purpose of the economy. And this is the question around what do we measure as economic, even national success? And so often we have defaulted to this idea that we can equate success with faster, faster growth of gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. And yet we're learning now, and in fact, people have been warning us for decades, how flawed GDP is as a measure of progress. So it goes to the very essence of what we think about as a successful economy a whole suite of changes that are needed. It's complicated, challenging program, of course. But the way I get my head around all those different changes is thinking about it as a little bit like a thousand-piece jigsaw. I mean, a lot of people during the lock- lockdowns of the last few years have been 
doing jigsaws on their kitchen table. So imagine you're sort of laying out those different pieces of the jigsaw. And most jigsaw players, they start with the corners, don't they? And so mm-hmm. to me, the corners, I think about the four P's of a wellbeing economy. So the first P is about purpose. And this is about what is the very purpose of the economy. So I've talked about how it needs to be much more than just faster, faster GDP growth. And here we're seeing a lot of countries bringing in things like wellbeing frameworks to set up how they define what success of their country is and wellbeing budgets, those those sorts of things. The next P is around prevention. This is saying it's not good enough just to service the demand created by the damage we do to people and planet, you know, putting sticking plasters on, onto the harm that people face, whether that's through the cleaning up after an oil spill or after catastrophic, you know, extreme weather. We've just had some of that here in the UK the last few days. There'll be a lot of damage to buildings and to life that's been come from that. And in, in, in social policy terms, you know, topping up people's wages or housing benefit because they can't afford to, to put shelter for their families. The next P is what I call pre-distribution. And this is quite a clunky word, but I think it's a really, really exciting concept. The idea of saying we need to do better than just redistribute and reduce the gap between richest and poorest. We need to ask, well, why did that gap open up so much in the first place? And that requires a conversation around how market outcomes generate, what sort of equality they generate. And so thinking about questions of pay rates, earnings ratios, ideas of community wealth building, how do you get local economic multipliers, keeping wealth circulating in a local economy would come in there. And then the final P of our four Ps about our jigsaw puzzle to help cluster all the changes is people powered. This is about making sure that economies have people at their forefront, that people feel in control and able to influence decisions. And again, things like participatory budgeting, citizens' assemblies, other, and also economic democracy, making sure that people have a say in the way their firms that they work for run would all relate to people powered there. It's not a clear, crisp typology, but it gives you a sense of the sorts of changes we need to see in our economy to build a well-being one. No, I mean, thanks a lot. That's definitely, I mean, it, it, it makes it more graspable, I think. And there is multiple levels involved. And I think also from what you outlined, one of the hidden things here is always power in, in many of those mm-hmm. things, who controls, who decides over the metrics, who kind of controls what kind of goals are achieved at at the multiple level. So one thing that I'm curious here about is because a lot of when we talk about the transition, green transition, socially fair transition, oftentimes there is the feeling to it that it's not people powered. It's something that we need to do that is decided at the cops of this world or something like that. But at the end of the day, there is a sentiment from people that the marginalized, the people that already suffer poverty or discrimination are actually going to have to pay again and are not at the table. In your experience, how can this be addressed through the concept of a well-being economy or also just generally speaking from from your experience and work? And I think it's a very valid concern and we need to keep bringing that question to the forefront of our policy debates because of I think the story of economic history in so many parts of the world, and I'm I'm sitting here in the, the west of Scotland, where there have been massive economic transitions from an industrial economy to a consumer economy here in in Glasgow, where huge numbers of people have felt this sort of economic footing pulled out from under their feet and have been left unsteady. And we see the legacy of that in a sense of alienation and despair that turns people to very, very harmful coping strategies. I often see, see people reaching for those 
coping strategies, whether that's at the pillbox or at the ballot box in, in extremist politics. And so we know what it looks like when it goes wrong, where we don't pay enough attention to securing people's livelihoods. And that there's a lovely phrase that I think really that we can hold in our minds. I think it comes from the World Bank, that we should protect the person, but not the posi- necessarily the position. So there are plenty of sectors of our current economy that need to be powered down because they're not in alignment with a sustainable planet and also they're not very healthy for communities as as well they're extractive predatory sort of industries that don't treat people well that prey on people's insecurities i mean advertising could could be seen as one example of that there's a lot of industries in in creating weapons or arms that also i'd say would be fundamentally misaligned with what we need in a in a well-being economy But people currently rely on those sorts of sectors for their livelihoods. So we need to take care of people. And that requires a conversation where people do not feel insecure about their ability to put food on the table or the future for their grandkids. So you have to start a conversation. You have to get really go back to basics and and help people feel empowered to envisage a world where they have a fulfilling job, where they're not anxious about their economic stability, and then think about what sort of changes are required there. And that's where I think initiatives along the like the lines of various just transition commissions has been one here in Scotland to give an example that really say this is it's non-negotiable to have this as co-created to, to use the jargon. It has to be co-created with communities. And they need to feel in control. It's all very well to have these nice conversations, but mm. communities absolutely need to feel in control of the changes. And that might need we need mean we need to power public money into helping people get the new skills that are relevant to their, you know, this sort of next wave of economic opportunity. I mean, there certainly will be businesses and jobs in a well-being economy. And so we need to help people feel equipped and ready to engage with those sorts of businesses. So as we realign the sorts of activities that make up the economy with ones that you know really fit with what people and planet need yeah very exciting just perhaps one clarification on this also in terms of is there a different language that perhaps is not spoken in the corridors of brussels or i don't know about glasgow that might be still a little bit more uh, locally aligned but how in your experience is the talk of a transition or something like this is this a useful framing or How can we empower people that we really also talk on the same level and uh, kind of address this per disconnect between some of the the grand concepts that might be useful for, well, the world, but uh, might not be the most relatable for somebody uh, who has to implement this locally? It's a really good point. And so I think it applies to the economy so often the way people and the media and and policymakers, politicians and often business leaders have talked about the economy has been in numbers and stock market graphs and questions around house prices or inflation or GDP per quarter. Or even when we're talking about inequality, it's been things like Gini coefficients or Palmer ratio. So it's it's a world that's steeped with jargon and complex language and ideas that often make it feel alienating to what's at the very essence of the economy, which is people and communities and the environment. And so I do think there's a task for all of us who are working on questions of economic policy and debates around that to really go back to what is it that makes up people's fundamental needs and how can the economy be in service of that? And and measures such as perhaps we need to move to measures such as 
how many girls ride their bikes to school rather than what's the per quarter increase in GDP per capita because maybe number of girls riding their bikes to school would be more indicative of a, a thriving community that's safe where people can afford breakfast for their kids, where there's local schools and so on. But that would also perhaps probably make intuitive sense to sort of everyday people, you know, people who drive taxis and so on, rather rather than just policy geeks like like myself. So I think there is a very crucial conversation around telling the story of the possibility and the hope of a better future. I also think so many folk really sense the need for change but are uncertain about its the potential for it to even happen. And so their expectations are pretty low in, in terms of things being able to be done differently. And so we, we get stuck with just doing marginal improvements, tweaking the current system. And I think there is a task also to inspire and and also put a spotlight on the really good examples that are already out there of really brilliant businesses, really interesting policy shifts that politicians are bringing in that really show maybe in small scale or in isolated examples, but show that this is absolutely possible. So I think there's also a task to sort of really, yeah, shine a spotlight on good examples that prove that it's not just desirable, but it's absolutely feasible as well. Can you elaborate on, on one very concrete example that you've kind of perhaps have come across? Well, I, oh, there's so so many. So, in, I mean, in terms of uh, policy making and governments, we've been part of instigating something called the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership, which abbreviates mm. to, to WeGo. And this is a group of governments. At the moment, there's five of them, which is Scotland, New Zealand, Zealand, Iceland, Finland and Wales. And these are governments who recognise that all the challenges facing the world today, we can't hang on to 20th century measures such as GDP, that they, we, you know, with the SDG agenda and all the, all the ideas around a better future, they, we need to put collective wellbeing into policy making. But all these governments also know that on their own, they don't have all the answers and they need to learn and share with each other. So they, they get together by what they call policy labs every couple of months to learn from each other and share common uh, challenges that they're facing and hopefully go on a journey of continuous improvement. So to me, that's a great example. And, and one of my favourite initiatives that these governments are doing is what the country of Wales is doing, where they have a future generations commissioner whose job it is, is to scrutinise policy and government departments and government budgets for how they will meet the needs of current and future generations. I think it's a brilliant example and other countries are looking at that and exploring their own version. But of course, it's not just about politicians, it's also about businesses as well. And, and there are so many examples of businesses, but I'll, I'll just give you one close to me and just up the road, actually. There's a brewery called Jaw Brew. And the guy who runs this doesn't want to grow massive. He wants to have an incredibly sustainable business. So to one beautiful example is, you know, when you get six packs of beer, cans of beer, and you usually get the six plastic rings binding them. He doesn't use plastic. He uses a biodegradable product made of prawn shells. He uses, for another line of beer, he uses old bread from a local bakery and, and uses that to put the yeast in, into his beer. Uh, he, and it's all about servicing the local economy as well. And he will share his recipes, he'll share his equipment with other craft brewers. It's a great example. Just to, to give one more, on the other side of the city, there's a workers' cooperative called Green City Whole Foods. And I think cooperatives where you have the workers 
owning the capital and the, the business itself designed not to serve the interests of remote shareholders, but to benefit the workers who are members of the organisation is another great example of what we need, the biz- sort of businesses that we need more of in a wellbeing economy. I could go on because there's so many great examples, but I, I suspect people listening will probably have their own that are coming to mind. Yeah, no, but it's I think it's it's very interesting that you, you choose different levels because, as you said before, they interact as well. I mean, what is the default setup from a corporate governance slash target of economic policy perspective? And then what how does this relate to more of the bottom-up practices of people running a business, something like that? So I think there is a lot to explore there. One question, I mean, now let's go to the very, very highest of levels. So the last time, or actually the first time we met physically was at last year's COP26 in Glasgow. And so I was wondering, since I hadn't seen you after it has finished, what would be your assessment? I mean, what did it do, if anything? And what remains to be done at at this level? You know, often people say you're either glass half full or glass half empty. And I think I'm just, the glass is filled up halfway (laughs) because I, I do think we have to acknowledge there was some bits of progress made at COP. There were some good agreements, but that certainly doesn't cancel out that it did not step up to the task and that all the predictions are that if the agreements are implemented, we're still looking at what 2.4 degrees warming, which we know will be devastating to so many, and already is devastating to so many communities around the world and our earth systems as well. And sort of the risk of tipping points is really quite dangerous. So it certainly wasn't good enough. It was fascinating to see that shuttle politics happening at the very, very last moment, the 11th hour in the in the plenary session. I, I was watching it just on TV as the negotiators were moving back and forth. And it, it, you just think, my goodness, that couldn't have happened online. Uh, so the fact that it was in, in person, because of course, there was a lot, lot of debate leading up to it. What was amazing is being someone who lives in Glasgow, of seeing just how active the community was and so many organisations outside the blue zone that was the official COP negotiations itself was really quite incredible. And there's been, I think, a lot of folk who weren't necessarily interested in climate or in policy before have got involved by going along to a rally or going to an exhibition or going to an event that so many of the local organisations put on. And hopefully that is perhaps the biggest legacy of COP is that you've got this wider range of folks in Scotland and beyond who are feeling connected and part of these debates. It would never have been enough. The the action has to come from people. It has to come from businesses. It has to come then from governments feeling pressure from their public to put in place the agreements that that they came out of COP. So the mobilisation of a huge, huge, huge number of people, I think, probably is the the most successful, and that's me being positive about about the pointing to the positive rather than perhaps the the sort of negatives of the fairly lacklustre and inadequate agreement. Yeah, a very very interesting take. I mean, I'm I'm also I, I saw saw some very interesting and, and innovative and hope things that make you hopeful, and then others where. There is much to be done. So one question before we close off with a kind of final statement would be, what? how would you recount your uh, your experience? I think you were in the, in the Scottish Citizen Climate Assembly. And there we have now experienced, I think, in, in, in various countries where those kind of things are being set up with the aim of going a little bit out of the policy bubble. How would you assess those kind of initiatives? And what has been your... Andreas, I'll declare an interest. I'm just mm. instinctively a fan of 
mechanisms to augment representative democracy. I think just voting for an elected representative every few years is far from enough for democracy. And so the idea that we will have other mechanisms of participation and deliberation, I am instinctively so, so in favour of. And the Citizens' Assembly's agenda, I think, is one is one great example. Scotland's had a few of them now, um, very much learning from places like Ireland as well, of course, where we saw very tangible change from the Citizens' Assembly into public policymaking around abortion, for example. Here in Scotland, we've had two, two big ones, uh, and I've, I've had a tiny role in both of them. I've, I've been um, what they call an expert sort of contributor, which, which makes me quite shy because I, I don't consider myself an expert at all. But for the Climate Assembly, this was, a, as people will probably be familiar with, it was 100 people chosen very, very carefully to represent Scotland as a whole. So it mirrored Scotland. It was like Scotland in microcosm in terms of age, where they lived, socioeconomic status, education, attitudes to climate, ethnicity, gender, those sorts of things. So it's quite a special, very unique audience to speak to. And they were all online because just as it was getting going, the pandemic hit. And I will say, one, it's incredible watching folks from all sorts of different walks of life coming together to learn first and foremost from each other and then you have these sort of subject area specialists coming in to give them give them ideas and a bit of evidence when they need it but it's it's quite a beautiful thing to see that citizenship in action almost it's really quite incredible the other thing that really struck me is just how careful you have to be with the facilitation and the input that's provided to make sure that what folks are hearing from external contributors like myself is fair and balanced, but also contextualised in the right way and that if someone's a dazzling speaker, that's not that's not what sort of people take away from it. And, and to be really fair to the participants, they don't get dazzled by a you know, particularly brilliant, eloquent speaker. They really scrutinise their content, they challenge it, they debate with each other, and then they come up with very, very bold recommendations that I think if you look at the outcomes of the Scottish Climate Assembly or other assemblies around the world really show the fact that the politicians can never use the excuse the public aren't up for these changes if, if you look at citizens' assemblies. One thing that's just worth saying really quickly is that the Scottish Government then responded to the recommendations of the Scottish Climate Assembly and then the Assembly decided to get back together for a weekend just a few weekends ago to look at the government's response and to sum it up, their outcome, their their response, their verdict on what the government said they would do was not nearly good enough, folks, not fast enough and not stepping up to the urgency of change we need. And I think that feedback loop is really important in helping make sure that politicians take the, the voices and the recommendations of these assemblies very seriously. Okay, that's very interesting because, I mean, also we, uh, on the EU level, there's, of course, the ongoing conference on the future of Europe where PEPS is very involved with also a, a edited volume making some suggestion and following this. So it's it's interesting to have uh, your, your thoughts on how, say, transformative those things citizen involvement can actually be if, if executed well. Yeah, it's, it's quite special if it's done well, but it's a, it's a hell of a lot of work in mm. terms of money and resource and time. But from what I have seen, I think absolutely worth it. Okay, well, that's ends the our talk on a kind of very positive note. Perhaps uh, as, a, as a very, very last question, also ending on an optimistic note, 
what would be, let's say we kind of this often is, this is kind of called the decade of decision in terms of climate and environmental policy measures. If we, if we kind of uh, fast forward 10 years, what would be your kind of dream or, or ideal outcome of what do we do or what have we achieved if now we are in uh, 2032? Oh, it would be at its simplest, Andreas, that an organization like the Wellbeing Economy Alliance is no longer needed because the idea that the economy should serve people and planet rather than the other way around has just become so ingrained and operationalized to such an extent that you don't need an organization like we all to push that agenda because it's just become normalized that that would be to me a great indication that think things have moved on and we're in a new new territory around how we think about and do the economy okay then let's hope and let's continue to fight on making this happen from all the various perspectives that will be needed to integrate this and also let's be critical of each other's work in the future uh, very happy that you took the time to join me very interesting and insightful conversation um to our listeners thanks a lot for uh listening to this uh, episode of Feb's Talks. And please also check out the other uh, episodes that we have for other uh, inputs on different topics. So thanks a lot. Thanks so um, much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Feb's Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>